0: The scripture for today's sermon comes from Psalm 130. The word of God speaks to us. My soul waits for the Lord. A song of ascents. Out of the depths I cried to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, This is God's word to us.
1: Thanks be to God. Well, good morning, guys. My name is uh, is Chad Kinsler. I serve as uh, a pastor in our downtown congregation. I serve as teaching pastor. All kinds of feedback coming from this side of the room. I love it. Uh, I'm just sort of acclimating myself to the room. Um, yeah, so we are. If you're new or visiting, so glad that you're here. We are um, one church across five congregations all across uh, central Oklahoma and uh, occasionally serving in my role as teaching pastor I get to sort of visit some of the other congregations and uh, open God's word and share and preaching with you and so uh, it's been uh, since before the the virus 2019 is the last time that I was I was here in Edmond so I've been looking forward to getting back with you guys for a long time uh, this church, one of, the, one of the fun things about getting to be one church across, uh, across the city in five congregations is getting to hear the stories of what God is doing uh, across the city in different places. And so every time we get together as a community of elders, a community of pastors across our different churches, uh, the stories that come out of what God is doing among you is always so encouraging to us uh, downtown, encouraging specifically to me. And your team of leaders and pastors here are, um, if I can play favorites, uh, they are some of my favorites. In fact, I remember. Yeah, that's right. Uh, five years ago, um, I joined the team in 2017, uh, July 2017, and uh, five years ago when I met uh, your lead pastor, David Adair, immediately he was a man that I looked up to, immediately as some man I respected and thought, man, I, when I grow up, I want to be like David. And then I found out we're the same age. Uh, I've, got, I've got work to do. Um, But I I love I love your pastors. I love simply your your lead pastor David. And to uh, to stand uh, and share the word of God with you today, uh, behind this team of elders is a real privilege. It's a real honor. So if you have a Bible, open up to the 130th Psalm. That's where we're going to be today. If you don't have a Bible, the words will be on the screen. And uh, and as mentioned earlier, if you don't have a Bible, we'd love to give you one. And so let's let's open up just with prayer. And I'd encourage us to take a moment. Just we bow our heads. to get in a place, a posture of focus before God. I want to encourage you. I don't know what your week has been, but maybe just take a second and just offer your own prayer to God. I want to invite you, whether you're a Christian or not, just to have the boldness you would ask god to help him to help you to hear from him today and then pray for those right around you ask that god would help them to hear from him today Father, we come today in the name of your Son, Jesus. And Jesus, without your name, without who you are and what you've done for us, we don't have a chance to voice a prayer to the Father. And so we come, Jesus, before the Father with all of your benefits, with everything that you've done to purchase for us the chance to offer this prayer. We come and we, we claim what. It's coming to us in Scripture that those who call on the Lord in truth, you are near to them. And so we, we want to claim that promise and trust that you're near to us this hour. And with your nearness to us, Father, we ask that you would help us to hear from you. We ask that you would help us to be shaped by you. We ask that you would help us to be impacted by you. We ask that you would help us to have an encounter with you, the living God, through your word. Holy Spirit, would you give us illumination? Holy Spirit, would you spike up our attention? Holy Spirit, would you form our affections for the Son of God and for the one he points us to in the Father? And We offer this prayer now in the name of Jesus, and together as the church we said, amen, amen. amen. Well, today is May 1st, and there's going to be Justin Timberlake memes all throughout uh, your social media, but that means that we're turning the corner to the season of vacation. We're turning the corner to the season of road trips and things maybe you're already planning for. And in my family, when it comes to a road trip, maybe more important than anything else that we do in the packing process is to have a strong game, a strong showing of car snacks. Right? (laughs) Before we head out on a journey, we've got to have... The car packed down, not just with luggage. I mean, we, we could probably buy some stuff when we get there, but we've got to have, before we set out from the driveway, some snacks and drinks. And there's one rule in my family as we set out on a road, road trip. Everyone gets to choose their snacks, and there's no judging. You don't get to judge anybody for what they want to bring with them. A long road trip isn't the time for healthy eating, it's not the time for making healthy choices. That's what we do in the day-to-day. It's simply a time to pile up whatever it takes to get the job done and to make the time pass. And so for me, the ultimate setup is a bag of Reese's Pieces. Reese's Pieces. let claps in the room. Amen. A bag of sweet potato chips. And I'm not sharing. If you want that, you can get your own bag of sweet potato chips. So I've got my Reese's Pieces, I've got my sweet potato chips, and I want a large cup of ice that can be refilled as often as I so choose with sweet tea. Now, there's some of you who think, hey, you're doing it wrong. Hey, there's no judging. These are my snacks. If you want different snacks, then that's your prerogative. But this is critical for the journey ahead, right? And all of us are this way. No matter what time of trip you're going on, there are certain things that you would deem as essential for the journey, as essential to get you there. And this is what's happening with the 130th Psalm. You've probably never thought of it in terms of car snacks, and certainly it's deeper than that, but it's caught up in this group of prayers. Psalm 130 is caught up in this group of songs or prayers, as it were, Psalm 120 to Psalm 134, and they're known as songs of ascent. They're known as pilgrim songs, It's a collection of songs that the people of Israel, the Old Testament Israel, would sing as they made their way to Jerusalem for annual feasts. These are a group of songs that the people would sing on the road back from Babylon after years of captivity and oppression to enemy nations. They are songs that were given to them to sing that would lift their hearts, encourage them in who God is, their faith, as they made their journey back home. These are songs that have been preserved for us in God's word, songs that have been kept for us in God's word, given to us now as we sit here in our moment for the purpose of helping us breathe out, of helping us. These songs are given to us for the purpose of anchoring down along our journey of following Jesus. I don't have to convince anyone here today that we're not home yet. Things aren't as we want them to be. Things aren't as we feel as they should be We're not home yet, but these songs are meant to help us along the road. These songs are meant to help us stay the course, stay on the road, because isn't there a lot of temptation toward off-ramps? These songs are meant to stay the course. So Psalm 130 is a song that's crying out for the experience of the soul to catch up to what's true in the mercy of God. It's a song that's begging God, can my soul please catch up to what's true about you and your mercy for me? Isn't it true that often what we know to be true and what we feel are two different things? Isn't that true? If you and I were simply left to our emotions, we would more often than not doubt that God is even real, simply based on emotions. And if he were real, real, we would be then left to doubt if he even loved us. Maybe he's real, but I'm not sure he loves me because I can't feel that today. I haven't felt that in years, you might say. And this song is going to help us beg for God. The reason this song is here is it's going to help us beg for God for our emotions to catch up, to be formed by what's true. So we'll work through this song, this pilgrim song in three parts. The first part is God Hears. God Hears. Pick up with me in verses one and two. It says, Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. The first thing I want you to see in this song is the repetition of exclamation points. In these first two verses, there are three exclamation points. We're not here for a grammar lesson, but that's significant. This is not a coffee shop song that's meant to be sung in tranquility. It starts with a boom. It starts with a crescendo, as it were. The shout from as deep inside of you as you can find your voice. This prayer begins with urgency. This song begins with clanging of cymbals. Maybe some of you are in that place today. Maybe some of you are like, I don't have time for a buildup. I'm in a spot of urgency when it comes to the place of God and who he is for me and who he might be for me. This song gives you permission from the start. This song gives you permission. You see, this song is even communicating us from the first two verses that God isn't so much looking for the cleaned up version of you. He's not looking for the morally domesticated version of you. He simply welcomes and what he wants is what's really inside of you. You don't have to sort of put on the thing that you think God wants from you. You can just sort of be you. This song gives you permission to breathe out and to anchor down. The great preacher from London, Charles Spurgeon, late 1800s, says it this way about this psalm. It little matters where we are if we can pray, but prayer is never more real and acceptable than when it rises out of the worst places. Can we hear that in sort of our Bible Belt domesticated religious context? Prayer is best Heard, and it's most acceptable when it rises out of the worst places. Deep places beget deep devotion. Depths of earnestness are stirred by depths of tribulation and trouble. Diamonds, don't they? They sparkle most amidst the darkness. The more distressed we are, the more excellent is the faith which trusts bravely in the Lord and therefore appeals to him and him alone. And so notice what's being begged for in this prayer. Notice what's being cried out for. He says, let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. What's being cried out here is for the mercy of God. The mercy of God is the release valve that this song singer is looking for. Only an experience of God's mercy will do for this singer. There is no substitute. I would ask you, how often is that your request? How often is that what you're crying out for? How often is it that the singular thing that you're seeking from God is an experience of his love? And see, the reason that he's crying out for this, the reason that this request trumps other requests that he might be able to bring is because an anchoring in God's mercy will stay with you long after other things are no longer needed. Long after the supply of provision is no longer needed to get you through that moment, an anchoring of God's love would still be there. An anchoring of God's love would surely give you the confidence that whatever it is that you might need later on, he'll supply that too because you've got his love, you see it. He's crying out for an experience of God's mercy because it will stay with him long after those other things are no longer needed. But before we get to the second piece of this song today, I want you to notice the tension of this prayer. the psalmist is clearly in a state of desperation. He says, I'm crying out of the depths. Like I'm crying out for this in deep places. The experience that he wants feels a thousand miles from him. I want this experience and I want this encounter of God and his mercy, but it feels like a marathon away from me and I haven't trained. So why is it That when we want most, what we want most from God, and when we need him the most, why is it that it's in those moments that he seems to be the most quiet? This is the psalmist's experience. I need you now. I'm on the road home. I trust that you're going to be there, but right now, I'm tempted for an off-ramp. I need you to be loud, and it just feels like you're silent, or just choosing not to listen. This is a tension for the singer, but this is a tension for us, too. My answer today is, I don't know. I don't know why it is that when we need God most, he seems to be the most quiet. I I don't know. Maybe you know the old movie Rudy, the football player that wanted to attend Notre Dame, he tried everything he possibly could to get accepted into the school and to go out for the team. After so many attempts, he is failing again and again. He goes to, goes to a Catholic church, and he there meets a priest. He's there praying, and the priest drops this line that is really helpful here in this moment for us, and it's something I've found true over years of sitting with people in this spot and sitting with my own self in this spot. Why is it that when I need God the most, he seems to be the most quiet? On the other side of that, the priest responds to Rudy. He says, here's what I've learned. There is a God, and I'm not him. I'm not him. Maybe you've read the book of Job. Maybe you were here a year ago or so when we studied that book. A man in suffering, a man looking for the voice of God, looking for the presence of God and can't seem to find it. He's got all sorts of questions. He cries out to God for help and for answers. And the book ends. The book ends in the midst of his sorrow and his suffering. And when God shows up to Job, and he does show up, he doesn't answer any of his questions. Why the sorrow? Why the pain? Why the lack of experience of your mercy for so long? Why all of this? He doesn't answer any of Job's questions. But what he does in the end of the book is he pours out his presence And he confirms with Job that even in the midst of what felt like absence, I was with you all along. The Lord is near to those who call out to him. This is the desire of verses one and two. But notice what he does next. In these verses, they have the power to lift the cloud for everyone in the room today on your journey of discipleship. It's not just that he waits for God's reply. God certainly hears him. He trusts that. But he waits in a certain way. The second... Part of the song is confident waiting. God hears, but we wait with confidence. Pick up with me in verse three. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could possibly stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you might be feared. And so I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope my soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. This singer in an act of gutsy and resilient faith demands that his soul remembers the goodness of God. He demands that his soul remembers God will not leave me in the dark forever. This is the whole point of these pilgrim songs. We're not home yet, we're not there yet, but we will. Not up for debate, not up for grabs, not sort of a matter of like negotiation. We will get there. That's the point of these songs. Things aren't as they should be right now. I'm not as I should be right now, but it will not be this way forever. And so he prays in verse three, if you, O Lord, If you should mark iniquities, if you should count sins, if you should keep a record of wrongs, if you should do this, if you of all people should mark iniquities, then who could possibly stand? Who could possibly have the confidence to get home if you're the one that's deciding whether or not we should get there? But isn't the reality of this prayer so good that he voices it for us? Isn't the the reality of this prayer how we feel In moments of the sinkhole of guilt, feelings of unworthiness because of what we've done. Isn't this how we feel? He voices this prayer for us. Isn't this how we feel in moments of shame, unworthiness because of who we believe ourselves to be? In those moments of guilt and shame, it feels like the only thing that exists in our minds is a list of things that we've done, a list of things that we believe about ourselves that is sort of the internal cross-examiner prosecuting attorney that gives a reason for our judgment, a reason for why we should have no business standing before God. And the arguments of that list are compelling. Oftentimes, that's what leads to despair. I don't want these things to be true, but they are, and I have no argument against them. They tell me the reason that I don't have an experience of God's love. The reason that I want an experience of God's love is because I need it most deeply, but the reason that I don't have it is because I'm too far beyond it. That's what the list suggests to us. I'm too far gone, and I don't have an answer. You say, yes, but isn't it true? This verse says, if you should keep iniquities, which means maybe he doesn't, but isn't it true that God does mark our iniquities? Isn't it true that nothing gets by the judge? Isn't he holy? No no wrongdoing sort of slips past him? Yes, that is true. But scripture in the full panorama tells us what God does with the list that stands against you and stands against me for all who look to Jesus. Colossians chapter 2 says this God made us alive together with him. Hey, don't have a flat reading of scripture. This is making a massive proposition. We have to ask how. God has made us alive together with Jesus. What about the list? How has he made us alive together? Well, he forgave all of our trespasses. Well, how did he do that? Well, he canceled that list. He canceled that record of debt that stood against us with all of its accusations and all of its prosecution and all of its... He canceled that record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, demands that required judgment. Judgment. This person should have no business of God's mercy, no business in the presence of God. He says he canceled that record of debt. Well, how did he do that? He set it aside. How did he do that? He nailed it to the cross. It has been dealt with. Those sins have been judged. And he did that, nailing it to the cross, and there he disarmed the ruler's And the authorities, the satanic accusations that suggest you have no business of God's mercy. He doesn't lay you to shame, but he says he put that argument to open shame. God shamed shame at the cross. And he triumphed over those authorities, over those accusations in Jesus. So God does keep a list, he does mark our iniquities. But he only does so for those who look to Jesus. He has exhausted that list on the head of his son in our place and emptied his tomb so that we could know for certain that that list really has been satisfied. It really has been satisfied. There are all kinds of reasons why our cries to experience God's love should not be answered. My track record suggests that I should have no business with God's love. But all of those reasons have been dealt with in a nail pierced body and folded grave clothes. All of those reasons have been dealt with. The past reasons, the reasons this morning that suggest that God's mercy shouldn't be mine, have been dealt with. Future reasons that might come up and surprise me as to why I should have no experience of God's mercy have been dealt with. There is nothing left to pay. And so his conclusion is verse four but with you there is forgiveness. That you may be feared. He says that God's mercy, God's forgiveness, causes him to fear. That doesn't mean he's afraid of God. He's singing this song to God. He's not, his forgiveness causes him to fear, but he's not afraid of God. It means that he's afraid to move forward in his life without God. That's what it means. To fear God is not to say, I'm afraid of you, God. To fear God is to say, I don't want life without you, and I fear taking on life if you're not there. For who else is like him? This reminds me of the song that we occasionally sing, Praise the Lord Almighty, where there's the lyric. It says, would you ponder anew? Would you dream anew, ponder anew what the Almighty could do if with his love he would befriend thee? With you there is forgiveness that you might be feared, that I might be anchored to you along this pilgrim journey. And so notice his resolve, verses five and six. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits and in his word, I hope my soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. He references here those ancient watchmen who would pull the night shift to make sure the city is kept safe. He's saying just as those old watchmen would long for that morning sunrise to let them know that their shift was done, they would long for that morning sunrise to let them know they could go home so do I look and I expect the rise of God's mercy in my life. It will come. My father will not leave me here. That's what the singer's saying. My father won't leave me this way. My father won't leave me in the dark forever. He will show up for me more than watchmen long for the morning. So I expect the mercy of God to rise in my life. Here's the final part of the psalm, verses 7 and 8. Before I read them a couple of years ago, just to kind of give personal voice to my experience with this, this prayer, I was stuck in a dark spot of anxiety and depression. I was in counseling and on medication, and there's a big backstory to all of that, but it was in a dark spot, and I was honestly in one of those places where I was afraid that the clouds might never break again. Maybe you've been there. And if you've been in a place of anxiety and personal darkness, you know that it feels like like you just have no energy to get to the spiritual practices that you once kept before. It's just hard to get there, you know? And there was one morning in the midst of that season that I Somehow I woke up early and I found the strength and the courage to open my Bible and I tried to read something. And I would love to tell you that I had this systematic way of finding the 130th Psalm and it was just honestly one of those mornings where I did everything I tell people not to do and I just let myself read whatever my Bible opened. And I found myself reading the 130th Psalm. And I landed on this Psalm and God used these final two verses to lift my heart to hope that day. Notice verses seven and eight. He says, O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord, for with him, there is steadfast love, and with him, there is plentiful redemption. He's not wasting any lyrics here. He's using purposeful words. With him, there is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his sins and iniquities. And so what the singer's doing is he's taking all the momentum of truth of the previous verses. "God hears me, and I'm waiting for him confidently. He's taking all the momentum of the previous lyrics, and he's now demanding something from you. He's demanding something from me. He's demanding something from all of God's people along the Pilgrim Road. He's demanding hope. Notice what he says there in seven. "O oh Israel, hope in the Lord." Not like a suggestion. This is an advice. I'm demanding this from you. Hope in him. Why? Because with him, with him is something like you'll not find anywhere else. Even on the dark day, there is steadfast love to hold the soul. For so long, I lived the Christian life with this distorted view that God had done so much to save me. God has done so much to save me. And so now what's happening in the Christian life is he's just looking to me to make a return on that investment. I've done so much to save you, now, now, now prove it. I've done so much to love you, now make something of that. For so long I lived with this view of the Christian life this way. That God was looking to me to show back my ability to right all my wrongs that God was looking to me now, well, with arms folded, whether it was wrongs that you did or wrongs that were done to you, make something of it. You have my love now. Go on. Like it was up to me. This is part of what put me in that sinkhole of anxiety and depression. Like it was up to me to make up for all that was broken and lost on my life from being brought up in a busted family. And now that I have a marriage and kids of my own, I have to redeem all of that and prove that I'm not going to return those patterns. Like, it was up to me to take all that was insecure and ashamed in my life from sexual brokenness, and now I've got to redeem all of that. I've got to make good on all of that as a faithful husband and have a marriage that works. Like, I don't know where I, I mean, Bible Belt religion probably sold me that view of God, but it was the reality that I walked in. I don't think I'm the only one. You've got my love now. Now show back that return of investment. But these verses, seven and eight, started to unravel that for me. Notice what he says here. With him, there is plentiful redemption. In verse eight, he will, he will. Not up for grabs, not a a place of debate. He will, absolutely locked in, fixed, do this. He will redeem Israel from all his sins. You see, you and I don't redeem anything. You right your wrongs. That's not the Christian message. As though I could before God. If he should mark iniquities, who could stand? We've already made that argument. You don't redeem anything. At no point is God ever asking his people to prove themselves and redeem themselves. At no point is God asking us to do that. With him there is plentiful redemption and he will redeem. The good news of God's redeeming work in Jesus is that God has no interest in doing just enough for you. God has no interest in saying, I'll fill your cup only to this point, And then I want to see you sort of fill it all the way up. There is plentiful redemption. Another place the psalmist is going to say, my cup, it overflows. He's not interested in doing just enough for you. God has no interest in bringing you back to a place of neutral and then saying, let's see if you can carry the pack the rest of the way. I sort of brought you out of deficit. Now let's see if you can do it from here. He says, there is plentiful redemption. This singer is not wasting lyrics. As we close today, I want to let Romans 8 illustrate for us what plentiful redemption is. God says there's plentiful redemption along the pilgrim road. What does that mean? There's there's ways that God covers you and helps you and fills you and compensates for you. What does that look like? Romans chapter 8. The words will be on the screen. What then shall we say to these things, talking about God's mercy? the experience we're crying out for. What then shall we say to God's mercy? If God is for us, then who could be against us? Notice his logic here. If, if God is for us, this, this one with whom there is steadfast love and who has the reservoirs of redemption available to him to not just keep to himself but to use for others, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? This isn't about just giving us his son. This is about him giving us all things. His son and then everything else thrown in. And so who's going to bring a charge? Who's going to hold that list? Who's going to hold that record of debts up? Who's going to bring a case against God's elect? Someone might try. The internal attorney that you and I have in that Voice of conflict. <laughs> Those outside of us might bring a charge against God's elect, but don't you recognize it's God who justifies. God gives the final verdict. You don't prove yourself. You don't shake off the, ha- the, the naysayers, regardless of what Taylor Swift says. <laughs> you don't do it. It's God who justifies. And he says, well, who's going to condemn? Who's going to stand up before God and say, this person has no business with an experience of God's love? Who's going to condemn? Don't you know that Jesus Christ is the one who died? He's the one who dealt with that list. He's the one who dealt with that condemnation. And more than just dying, happy Easter, he was raised from the dead, and he's now at the right hand of God, who is indeed praying for you right now as you hear the sound of my voice. And so if that's true, who should separate us from the love of Christ? What can possibly do that? What pilgrim road could possibly separate us from the love of Jesus? Should tribulation Should tress, should persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors. How do do you become more than a conqueror? It's not just that your enemies are defeated. It's that your enemies now become your servants. The things that once threatened you to have no presence with God now are the things that drive you to God. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. So I am now sure that neither life nor death or angels or rulers nor things in the present or things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation or along this pilgrim road will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen, amen. This is a pilgrim song. We're not home yet. But this is the truth that we need to stay on the road. Out of the depths I cry for God's mercy, and I look for him more than the watchman for the morning, because with him there is plentiful redemption. Let the singer sing. Two questions I have for you as we wrap up today. Where do you need to take up hope in God again? Is there a place where you just like, I I don't know that I have hope in the Lord today? okay. This song is an invitation to take up hope again. He will show up for you. He will show up for you. His track record is clean. The second question is this. Where do you need to take up again that promise that he will show up for you? (laughs) Where are you doubting that God has Chosen to silence you, right? Where are you doubting? This song is an invitation to take up the promise, He will show up for you. So we move from God's word to God's table today. And the beautiful thing about this table next to a pilgrim song is this God has not asked you to take the journey of following Jesus hungry or thirsty. Psalm 34 says, I've been young and I've been old, but I've never seen a mic stand fall at the hand of Ryan (laughs) Geekus." Psalm 34 says, I've been young and I've been old, but I've never seen God's people thirsty or begging for bread. And so Jesus, for those that are on the pilgrim journey, he takes the bread and he breaks it. And he says, hey, Listen. I'm not just asking you to get home. I'm giving you myself to assure you that you'll get there. This is my body that's broken for you. Anything you need for the journey, anything you need for the journey, I'll supply. An experience of God's mercy in the broken body of Jesus for you. He says, take and eat. He takes the cup And he says, I don't want to leave you thirsty either. He says, this is the blood of the new covenant that's poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins. And he says, I don't want you just to look at the cup. I want you to drink it. You know what the new covenant suggests? What this blood pictures? The promise that I will be your God and that you will be my people. I will be your God. And you will be my people. And for that promise, God says, I want you to take and drink. I want you to drink that promise. What could separate you from that promise? Christ died. More than that, he rose from the dead. More than that, he's praying for you even this morning.